everybody, but I don't know, maybe that one person, he's not so welcome, Barry, but that's another story for another time. To Breaking Kayfabe with Aldrin and Barry, the three best friends you didn't know you had. And on this particular edition of the episode, Barry, oh, Barry, what do we love more than talking about Japanese wrestling? Talking about food. Food, movies, TVs, pop culture. Masturbation. Life. I haven't done the live thing in a while. On this particular episode, we are going, we're going this century by God, Barry. It is March 1st, 2003 to the Rings of Noah, a match that was called by a current wrestler on Twitter as the greatest match of all time. And Barry and I are going to be discussing if, in fact, that is the case. So you've got that to look forward to. The greatest match of all time. That's kind of a high bar, Barry. So, besides that, we're going to be doing a little AEW talk. Last night's pay-per-view, which I had a chance to watch, spent $49.99, Barry, on that hard-earned money uh, on the pay-per-view. Besides that, we're going to be talking to Glacier, our old friend Ray Lloyd, former attendee of the CWF Fan Fest in beautiful downtown Lutz, Florida. He was there once. Barry, this is the episode that we're going to call No Toothaches, because no toothaches prevented us, Barry, from having the interview with Ray Lloyd. Yeah, he it's uh, look, this is already in the can. First off, it's a great interview uh, because, you know, you ask Ray a question and uh, 10 minutes later, he's given you this great, great answer. Uh, but at the same time, I, easily, I would say, Jeff, and I thought this when we met him because he's he may be one of the friendliest people I've ever met he, outside of even wrestling. This guy is just warm and friendly. And I think this really comes through in the interview as well. Couldn't have enjoyed our time with him any more than I did. And. One of the things I liked about the fact that we discussed with Ray, his uh, wrestling career, uh, his beginnings as a fan in the wrestling business. We uh, discuss his upcoming appearance for our friend Nick Massey. But we get into others, a food talk with Ray. Uh, we get into a uh, discussion with a famous teammate of Ray's from college who is in the College Football Hall of Fame. So uh, lend an ear, all of you football fans, to see if you know who I'm talking about. So we got a little bit of everything in this episode, Barry. This is going to be a fun episode, too. So, I, Jeff, what are we, we Have we ever had hours? an episode that hasn't been fun? Not if you ask me, but are we going about six hours on this one? What's the I length of this one? I, you know, I, in hindsight, maybe the ones where I had cancer weren't as fun. That's but, true. you know, if you enjoyed it, yeah, thanks, Barry. Thanks a whole lot. <laughs> Barry, let me just ask you this. AEW last night, before we get to our match of the week, Revolution, a pay-per-view that I want to say I've heard mainly positive things about. Now, you did not watch it, let's be candid, but from what you've heard, at least, have you heard positive things? Yeah, I don't think I heard. So sadly, yes, you're right, because had I been home in front of a television, I, I would have. Was it 50 bucks, Jeff? Is that right? $49.99, please. Let's let's not uh, give Tony Khan that extra one that penny. extra penny. I would have ordered it. And look, I what I like about I like so much about AEW. And yes, I am a fanboy. And I, I don't think I think some people can't see through it. Uh, you know, to enjoy what's good about AEW. But I would have paid that fifty dollars. What I do like, they don't do many pay per views. Is it once every three months? Once every six months? You know, here's, here's, uh, I don't mean to interrupt you, but let, let's start yeah. with this. One of the questions I had in my mind last night, and this is a good discussion point. Do you think 
that AEW needs to establish one particular pay-per-view as their quote-unquote WrestleMania, like the one big thing of the year? Or do you think the way they're doing it where they do, say, three pay-per-views a year and neither, you know, none of them are billed as the big event, uh, quote-unquote, do you think that's the better way to go? So I think the answer, the first part of what you said, that's where I would agree. I think they do need to have one event. But what I like that they've done, and I think, again, on the AEW haters, this is lost on them. This has been the building of a company. If you go back to the first month or three months of shows, guys like Joey Janela, and I'm not knocking, you know, you can knock Joey Janela all you want. This is not a knock. But maybe guys like Sonny Kiss, Joey Janela, guys that that, I, you know, weren't either getting over whatever it was, guys that I don't think could hold your interest deeply. They kind of have moved on and they they've really zeroed in. And when you look at this pay-per-view, I was intrigued by the matches. But then I read the reviews online this morning. I actually went through and I read all these reviews. There's no fluff, right? Like there's no filler. We're not going to put some stupid segment like, you know, like WrestleMania where they make it six hours long and they throw in shit that you don't want to see. They've presented a really solid card. And look, this doesn't happen overnight. AEW certainly had some missteps along the way. Doesn't change the fact that I think it's a great wrestling company providing a great product, but there had to be changes. There had to be tweaks and they did that. So to that, their model, and I'm I'm thinking, Jeff, is it two pay per views a year at this point? Is that uh, well? I'll get to uh, I'll get to that in a second. All right, so I'm thinking I'm thinking they're only doing two per year because I I think the last one was when Punk debuted. If I'm correct, I might be wrong. I I don't hold me to that, but if so, you could probably do this once every three months. Get on a a, a better schedule. I like the fact they're not doing this shit monthly because that's no. That's, I don't. I don't. I don't think. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't want that, and I hope everybody uh-huh. else doesn't want the whole. Uh, you know where they're getting to the, like the old. Uh, WWE uh, in your house kind of thing where it's like uh, they're doing a $10 a month pay-per-view. I don't want that. No, they don't. They don't need it. And I like, I think once every three months, maybe three times a year, once every four months is great. Uh, But I I think it would be smart if they did, because you see a lot of success with, you know, something like WrestleMania. Look, I don't think WrestleMania, I don't think their cards are any better than some of the other cards that are presented. But it, they've built it up as to, you know, it's WrestleMania. Oh, my God, it's the biggest event of the year for the Federation. I think AEW would benefit from something like that. And I think that's probably a route that they're going to go. Smart not doing it right out of the gate, though, in my opinion. Yeah, and the reason I didn't answer uh, the question right away was uh, I want to just say that uh, I actually paid for the pay-per-view last night. And as Barry and Lou and I were talking before we began recording – I can't even remember the last time I paid for a pay-per-view. I used to, you know, go and we used to have, uh, when I lived in South Florida, we would have pay-per-view, you know, events where we watched. Usually it's, you know, somebody's house. We'd have about five to ten people that would, you know, join us and stuff like that. But as far as me paying my hard-earned, oh, maybe Mrs. Bowdrin's hard-earned cash, last night we dropped the $49.99 for the pay-per-view. Mrs. Bowdrin, I will say, was sitting there, but she – wasn't really watching, I will have to say. But I was texting with my old friend, Brother Jeff Steele, about the event. 
And I told him the reason that I paid money for this pay-per-view is this is the first pay-per-view in a long time that I can remember feeling like there were enough storylines that had piqued my interest, that captured my imagination, and Barry, isn't that what it's all about, really, to where I wanted to pay for the event? Well, there, I, yes, it is. It, it, especially knowing you, Jeff, and you still have the first dime you've ever earned, that if a pay-per-view is taking place— I think you have a couple of pennies that you earned as a <laughs> server and or manager. Well, that was actually as a manager, you'd be absolutely correct. Check. They, you, you find a way to check. That's the new check now. You, they find a way to fuck managers in restaurants. But yeah, it, it, it is. Look, if you can be convinced to part with 50 bucks, you know, to, to order a product that you see twice a week, three hours, and, and you're going you're gonna to pay 50 bucks, they've done a great job in selling that product to you. So yes. yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. And, and it, in keeping with that line of thinking as to what we were talking about now, if they do three pay-per-views a year or two or three and it's $50 and they've created these sort of storylines, I'm in, you know, if they, quite honestly, if they have one that I don't think is as compelling, the storylines aren't as good, they won't get my money. But, you know, I, I feel like they did that leading up to the card. They did a very good job. They've created characters uh, that I have found myself uh, becoming interested in. I, I want to know what's going to happen in their matches. Now, was it perfect? No. There were a few flaws in the proverbial game. Let me just throw a couple things out to you, Barry, because I know you watch the WWE product much more than I do uh, by a wide margin. So there were a couple events and people on the show last night where I kind of want to ask you in the WWE world, uh, how they are going to be, uh, how they're going to fit into AEW, uh, as they come up. So first thing, first complaint, Malachi black, who I thought six months ago, or when he first came in was probably one of the most compelling figures uh, that I yeah, I loved his friggin' intro. It was so cool. He's got the badass, you know, uh, kick, uh, roundhouse kicks, uh, sort of kickboxing tie by uh, tie uh, style that uh, I haven't really seen someone in this country really get over doing. Uh, and I thought to myself, this is a guy that, if they do it right, can be competing for their version of the world championship. And instead, they've, in my opinion, completely dropped the ball. They, they've created this House of Black, and now he's in a six-man tag on the lead-up to the pay-per-view. He's not even on the pay-per-view, Barry. Have they dropped the ball with Malachi Black? Ooh, that's a tough one right there. Have they dropped the ball? I would say... Yes, but it would be a tempered yes, because I, I believe this could easily be reversed. And, and this could also be leading to something. He should have been on the actual pay-per-view. It shouldn't have been on the lead-up. He's an interesting guy. I don't believe that Brody King, who is the other member, and then Buddy Matthews. And my God, did Buddy Matthews. I thought it was Buddy Murphy. Well, but it, what do they call him now? Is they Are they calling him Murphy or Matthews? As you're talking, Lou can check for us, if you don't mind, Lewis. Buddy Murphy was his WWE name. Ah, right. That was out there somewhere. Okay. And he looks like he gained about 40 pounds of solid muscle. Yeah, so he's we, ripped. We know what he's been doing in his spare time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, there's no, I mean, that, that I think this is one of the most blatant uh, and egregious 
Have we Are you trying to say Tony Khan is not testing? I don't believe there's any sort of steroid testing. And look, more power to him if he can still wrestle. How was he last night? Because Buddy Murphy, Buddy Matthews, was actually an excellent wrestler in the. Uh, no, the, the, the six-man tag was a fine match. I didn't have a. I didn't have a problem with the match itself. Uh, and House of Black went over. Uh, but my my problem is more the fact that. Uh, they're making this guy now part of a six man, you know, and, yeah, or he you should know. be a singles guy. You yes. are, you're right about and, that. And, you know, like when they started doing all that shit, uh, it really, I was like, oh my God. And this leads to a problem that I've had with AEW. And just so all of you know, I'm not some uh, apologist that only sees uh, the, uh, the good stuff. I'm willing to offer commentary negatively if I see it. There have been occasions, Barry, and you and I have spoke about this, where they have acquired a new talent that shows a lot of potential, and then a couple months later, you kind of go, where's that person been lately? They did it. When they got Vicky, Vicky Guerrero, I was like, oh, it's a nice little coup for them. And then like a month later, it's like, where's Vicky Guerrero? So, uh, Barry... I'm going to throw this out there. When's the last time Rusev was on uh, the AEW program, any of the AEW programming? Miro, it's been Miro, several, sorry, months, whatever. several months at this point. And I was thinking, because they still show him in the graphic. Yes, so they do. I w- which yeah, makes it, was, it even weirder. It does. I, I think there might have been some sort of injury that occurred, maybe something with the wife. I know that there was a story. I did see a recent photo, and he has dropped a ton of weight. He looks like a bodybuilder uh, as opposed to a just a big guy, a weightlifter at this point. But you're right. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you the guy to me that they've really dropped the ball with and they're trying, but it's just not working for some reason is Andrade and Andrade in the Federation, NXT especially. He was having these matches that were just off the charts. He made it to the big stage. I think he was Smackdown and uh it didn't quite have the same luster, but still had some really good matches. He is capable, though, of just having tremendous matches. I don't know what's happening. I don't, you know, the stuff with Cody didn't help him. On that note, I'm, I am sticking with my, this is all a work with Cody. I was waiting to see if he was going to show up last night, and he did not. <laughs> he did not, but I am more convinced than ever that, and look, I will, I will go up to Cody and shake his hand and apologize. If I'm wrong, but I and he will believe- say thank you. I I appreciate it. So he will, uh, <laughs> he will won't he? Of, uh, Cody's list. I apologize. Yes. So uh, yeah, uh, there's that, and um, it's just a, a a pattern I've seen. Now let me ask you. Uh, getting back to a uh, uh, buddy uh, there that we spoke about. Now, but since I don't watch the WWE product. How was he presented uh, in the, whether it's NXT or on the main stage of WWE, was he a big deal? So he wasn't as big a deal as he should have been. He was kind of presented as the disciple and or flunky of Seth Rollins. They turned him face briefly, baby face. Then they turned him back. He was back with Seth Rollins. So there was, it was very inconsistent in the way he wasn't presented as a top guy With that being said, I believe he's capable of being a top guy. I don't think his interview skills are great, but his in-ring work is fantastic. I think he's capable of a lot more. Okay, let's uh, move along here. So there was the the three-way tag match, which I thought was the the best match on the show with the Young Bucks, uh, Red Dragon, and Luchasaurus and Jungle Boy. Um... To me, that had the most 
action and you really saw the whole booking coming in where they were doing stuff where it like it really made sense because they teased the whole Young Bucks, Red Dragon having problems with each other, uh, you know, kind of turning on each other. And then you had uh, Jungle Boy and Luchasaurus end up going over and uh, they retained the title. I really like the team of Red Dragon and I'll tell you why. Uh, as I was texting with my friend Jeff Steele, we both you know, are not fans of the Bucks. Now, I know that, good Lord, Barry, is there a more, other than maybe Kenny Omega and maybe Cody, maybe it's the, maybe it's the guys that started AEW, is there, more, is there a more polarizing figure, and I'm going to make them a singular, the, the two of them, than the Young Bucks in wrestling today? Well, no, the young. So I would say uh, Cody is not really polarizing because I think I think <laughs> everybody most hates him. <laughs> yeah, sadly, I think it's all on one side. Omega and the Bucks. Yes, I I would put the Bucks over Omega. But I got to tell you, I look the young Bucks as workers. I've always I always thought that they were good. Uh, the gimmick, which I know that you've hated their gimmick. Initially, I was OK with it. That's worn on me. The young bucks have got to change. There's got to be a change to the bucks in some form in the next few months or something's going to have to give. It's just not it's not going to continue to work here. And I'm assuming I could be way off. I'm assuming that they're going to turn baby faces again. Yeah, and that's kind of where I'm thinking, it's, you know, has to be on that note, Jeff. I was in Pittsburgh this past weekend. I had dinner at a restaurant called Noodlehead which is a Vietnamese Thai restaurant right across the street was a Chinese restaurant. Name of that Chinese restaurant, Red Dragon, baby. There you go. So I really like the team of Red Dragon, and I'll tell you why. They remind me of an old school bully heel team, the way that Kelly and Arn were, were great bullies as a heel team. Uh, the way that, you know, like, God, like the Anderson brothers were a bu uh, bully team. The way that the Midnight Express were a bully uh, team. And, and when I see the Young Bucks, I've always said this. They remind me of a couple of guys who, you know, they do some spectacular shit. But it's like they're guys, hey, let's go out there and pretend like we're bad guy wrestlers. That's like what they come off to me. Now, they do some uh, really innovative stuff. Apparently, I don't know if they're booking the tag team division or not, if they do. And if they book this match, they did a great job in it. And, you know, uh, I got to give them credit for that. I'm just not a huge fan of the whole coming out wearing kind of weird clothes and you know, the videotaping shtick. And then the guy, Brandon, that's spraying them with the uh, freezer spray, the freezing spray. I mean, that's kind of a funny gimmick and stuff like that. But do you really want your, you know, your lead team uh, that's a heels? Do you want them to be a comedy act or do you want them to be seriously, you know, hard ass bullies like the way that Red Dragon are coming across? And that's why I think I like them more. What do you think? Is that fair? Very. I think I love look, I loved Red Dragon and ROH and I loved them when they were uh, a different name in NXT. They're great. They they these guys know how to work what they do. They know how to work together. They also know how to work a crowd. And I love that. Yeah. And I, I realize I, I mentioned the opening match in the pay-per-view was Jericho and Kingston. It was a good match. Uh, Chris Jericho absolutely doing what a great veteran heel should do. And putting over this guy and giving Eddie Kingston his huge first pay-per-view ever win. And that was a kind of a nice moment. I will say one of the things that you would have enjoyed, Barry, watching this match is here it is. It's this grudge match they built up. It's two guys that don't like one another. It's a respect match. 
and Chris Jericho gets introduced. He's kind of flipping off the crowd. Eddie Kingston get it, gets introduced. He comes to the ring, and what does he do, Barry? He doesn't wait for the bell to ring right from the get-go. He jumps in, attacks Jericho, and he hits one of those uh, Masawa uh, or Kobashi backdrops where uh, Jericho landed on his head. I mean, it was like, whoa. But, I mean, the purpose of a grudge match is to fucking get after it, not to, you know, slowly, you know, circle one another and then lock up collar and elbow. I hate that shit so bad, Barry. We always talk about that, too. Yeah. It's lock up collar or that I'll, I, I hate you because you have, like, thrown a fireball in my sister's face, so I'm going to hold you in an arm bar for three minutes yeah. to show uh, you I'm how not I, gonna, I'm not going to have you arrested. I want to settle this in the ring. <laughs> With so. an arm bar for yeah. three minutes. Yeah, it, it makes no sense. And uh, on that note, I it, it, all right, I'll make this. Leroy McGurk could have seen what was going to happen with Chris Jericho and Eddie Kingston about 50 miles away. All right. Thank you, Leroy. Uh, and next we had the, uh, the, the match with the six guys for the winner to get the title shot with the, uh, it, it looked like they had an inner tube uh, painted gold above the ring. And, uh, and you couldn't just pull it down. You had to actually go and unhook it. And, uh, so we had, uh, amongst others, you had, uh, Oh, well, you had Wardlow, you had Ricky Starks, orange Cassidy, um, Oh God, um, Keith Lee. Uh, who's the guy with Taz? Uh, the the big muscle head that's with Taz. Hobbs. Uh, Hobbs. Hobbs. Powerhouse yeah, Hobbs. yeah. Powerhouse Hobbs. Uh, and uh, I'm forgetting somebody else. I can't remember who. I apologize. But anyway, Hook. No, Hook. it was not Hook. But this match, I think, was one of the lesser matches on the card as far as like what they did in the ring. And of course, you. Oh, and the other one was uh, Christian. Uh, I'm sorry. And uh, who I'm sure was the guy that put the match together because he's done so many ladder matches. There were some nice spots in the match uh, that was kind of that were creative. But overall, the flow of the match was very like stilted stop and go kind of stuff. There was a a moment actually when it happened where uh, Orange Cassidy was uh, between uh, I think it was uh, Keith Lee and um, and Wardlow. And he had his hands on the ladder, and they started lifting him up off the ground. And then he did the uh, the skin the cat, where he ended up on top of the ladder. And I think, not that I was in favor of Orange Cassidy winning the match, I, that's not what I saw happening. Uh, but I thought, I thought, wow, that would have been a really creative way for Orange Cassidy to get the win. You know, like have these guys basically lift him up to where he could grab the the gold uh, inner tube or whatever the hell it was up there. So uh, Wardlow ends up. Uh, getting the wind not terribly surprising uh there was a couple of uh very creative spots uh with uh with all the guys uh getting a little shine in so barry let me just ask you this wardlow is yeah, a bit of a phenomenon uh sort of a uh a latter day i'm gonna say a latter day goldberg in the sense that i don't really think as a worker he's really there yet but the job they've done creatively with him uh, is very, very good. And I think if nothing else, the character is certainly really over with the fans. And that's all that should matter at this point. The, the character is way over with the fans. Yeah. Generally, when that happens, that means merchandise is being sold. Yeah. He doesn't fans, have to be Ricky Steamboat just yet. No, not at all. Fans were chanting his name. And let's be honest. He's actually pretty good for a guy his size. That's only going to get better. My only concern with Wardlow when do you pull the trigger at this point? I think 
Well, yeah. I'm going to get to that in a second, right. Mr. Rose. All so, right. uh, yeah, one thing I thought was interesting is Keith Lee is such a large human being. I mean, he is freaking massive that one of the things they did is when they had them standing nose to nose, he and Wardlow, it, it really showed you that Wardlow, uh, compared to you and me, he's he's a huge human being. But compared to Keith Lee, he came off really not looking that big. You know, sure. it, it's like you, you kind of do you really want to, you know, uh, sort of break kayfabe to the fans that maybe he's not this massive hulking monster that you've created him out to be. And when you put him up to, you know, it's like when you put Hulk Hogan up next to Andre, uh, Andre, Andre was so large that it made Hulk Hogan comparatively speaking, of course, look, you know, not so large. And uh, that was one of the things they did. So anyway, so Wardlow goes over. Okay. He gets the, the next uh, shot or whatever. Uh, it was, uh, there was a lot of very good creative stuff going on next we had jade cargill versus uh ty conti so let me just ask you is jade cargill this is something i texted brother jeff last night is jade cargill at this point in her career the female wardlow yeah that's a that's an excellent analogy it's exactly what she is yes so you're saying i'd be you would be a hundred percent correct Check. So, uh, you know, that's what I saw. I see her as someone with a lot of potential physically standing there. She looks great. She's cut. I, I like her costume, you know, the, the emerald green or the jade green, whatever you want. It looks she looks fantastic standing there. But please don't let don't let yourself be fooled that she's great in the ring yet. She has tons of potential and I'm not shitting on her saying she's horrible, but she's not there yet. And one of the things I have to say with all the women that they do extremely poorly, the ones that they are really featuring, is the kicks. When they do a kick, especially like a when they try to do that uh, reverse kick, it, it looks horrible when they do that. And somebody needs to tell them, okay, ladies, quit doing that until you guys have figured it out. Because, you know, you're not Kuniaki Kobayashi. Uh, you're not even Brian Pillman doing that move yet. It just looks really ineffectual. It looks really weak. It looks really stagey. And uh, I really hope they stop doing that. Uh, let's get up. Uh, next, we've got... Da, 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 da. Okay, now we've got the big uh, CM Punk versus uh, uh, MJF match. Now, uh, dog collar matches, uh, traditionally, uh, obviously, you're you're going to have massive blood. Uh, you know, that's it's expected. And... Punk once again hits the gusher. He bleeds pretty much like uh, the proverbial stuck pig. Uh, they introduce a, uh, a song that Punk comes out to. Uh, it's a song by a group called AFI. Uh, actually, Mr. Bowdrin had to do the uh, research. Text my daughter this morning. Oh, have you ever heard of this group? Yeah, I listened to it when I was in high school, that kind of thing. And uh, But apparently it was Punk's uh, ring intro song when he was in ROH. Uh, so it was kind of a big deal to a lot of people. He also, I think he sort of wore his uh, his outfit that he wore in uh, Ring of Honor uh, before he went to the Federation. So, uh, yeah, so what happens uh, that you were referencing earlier about Wardlow is uh, Punk gets the advantage and he's finally, first time I can ever recall seeing MJF bleed, Barry. Can you remember a time he's bled? I don't think he ever has. has yeah. He? So the first time yeah. he uh, he did the flare gimmick where he went under the ring, came back up with the uh, the horrible laceration, which really really wasn't horrible. And uh, but so anyway, at some point he's getting pounded on. He brings a thumbtacks into the ring. 
Uh, they both take the bump on the thumbtacks. Uh, and so uh, then he calls out, Wardlow! Wardlow! And he calls for him. And Wardlow's coming out, and uh, he's got uh, he's, he's looking for the ring, okay? And they did a really cute spot uh, where he wants Wardlow to hand him the ring, okay? And so he says, give me the ring, give me the ring. And Wardlow starts going through his pockets looking for the ring. He opens the jacket up. He doesn't have it there. He's checking his pants pockets, doesn't have it there. And MJF in a great spot goes, you had one job. And that's when uh, CM Punk hits the uh, the go home, the finisher. He gets the victory. No, I'm sorry. Wait a minute. I stand corrected. Uh, he grabs uh, MJF, hits him with a move. And at that point, the camera does a close-up on Wardlow, who looks at the camera, and he goes, oops. He reaches <laughs> in the pocket, and he pulls out the ring that he's had all along. Then he takes the ring. He puts it on the ring. He looks at He makes eye contact with CM uh, Punk, puts the uh, ring on the apron, Punk crawls over, grabs the ring, puts it on, and boom, he hits it. Uh, he hits MJF with his own ring, uh, and that's what leads to the victory. So when you said, you know, they've got to pull the trigger on this, they kind of started the ball rolling because I was sitting there wondering whether or not Max was going to come out. Maybe this is something they're going to do Wednesday night, is Max is going to come out and go, uh, you work for me, I want your title shot that Wardlow earned and that's what precipitates finally the turn. What do you think? Well, I like that too, and they should. And as far as you know, they they've been this close to pulling the trigger on this. I'll say for six months, right, without even knowing. Definitely the last two months. At some, but you, you know, and I like the fact that it's being drug out. If that's is drug out the word, is it dragged out? Dragged out. Dragged out. Mr. I like English the fact major. Exactly. I like the fact that it's being dragged out. And uh, but at some point, you're going to have to pull the trigger. And I do think that if you wait too long, people are going to lose a little bit of interest right now. I think the interest is peaked. It's there. That is a great scenario that you just put forth. Everybody sees this coming. This is Tony Khan. Feel free to take my scenario. Go ahead and and send Jeff a paycheck as well. You might as well with that. He bought tapes for me in the past. Let's yes, he did. (laughs) <laughs> he, you know, the one thing he said, he said, uh, Mr. Bowdern, I find that your tapes are of a much higher quality than that guy <laughs> in Nashua, New Hampshire, who sells eight generation tapes. Uh, I'm not going to mention his name, of course. But uh, uh, then we had Britt uh, Baker go over. You think I'm going to get some heat for that? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so then uh, Britt Baker goes over in her match. Uh, and then we have the introduction with a contract signing, Barry. Uh, here's another WWE guy I need to ask you about. Uh, is it uh, Shane Strickland Swerve? They call him now. Was this guy a big deal in WWE? So he was a. Uh, I'd say he was a big to medium sized deal in NXT. He had come in. He was a babyface at first. He became a heel, and then he was part of this faction called Hit Row, which was uh, himself, two other guys, and a female. They were a big deal in NXT. They were getting over. They brought them up to SmackDown. They had done a promos for a month before saying coming soon, you know, hit Rose coming to SmackDown, built it up. They wound up cutting everybody like they were on SmackDown for a week or two. They cut first. They cut the female. Then they cut all the male stars. This is a guy real big uh, out west 
I want to say he's worked out in California. He was in, did you ever watch Lucha Underground? Well, that's a, a promotion we never talked about either. Lucha Underground, Jeff, did you ever watch I, I that? I think I watched a few episodes. I, I wasn't like a weekly uh, viewer or anything. Gabe Daigle, that's like his all-time favorite deal right there. Uh, and I think Gabe went to most of these shows. And uh, a shout out to Gabe. But he was a uh, kill shot. In uh, in Lucha Underground, he is capable of some amazing things. If he is booked correctly with the right opponent, this guy could actually be a game changer, in my opinion. Big. Story. Okay. So next we had the uh, Danielson John Moxley match. I uh, I think I might have enjoyed this second most on the card uh, because it was a a really it was a strong match. Moxley hit uh, the proverbial gusher during the match. And he and Danielson really going after it. Uh, by the way, I do feel the need to mention the guy in the front row with the sign, Barry, that said, quote, Meltzer fears Cornette. Which, <laughs> I, uh, bro Brother Jeff pointed out to me and I said, eh, I don't really think so. But, you know, yeah. but so the match was really good. It ends up with Moxley going over in a uh, sort of a uh, pin that kind of came out of nowhere. Uh, they are doing some pushing and shoving. Security can't break them apart. Oh, and then Barry down the aisle comes William Regal. And that was a nice pop from the crowd uh, who, I, I, you know, wasn't expecting it. He comes in and he gets in each of the guy's faces, breaks them up, makes them shake their hands, you know, shake hands with one another. A lot of people thinking that was sort of a tribute to Ring of Honor moment where, uh, you know, you, you, you've got to show your appreciation for your opponent. They uh, did a thing. Now people, of course, speculating this may mean the Danielson Moxley tag team is on. What do you think? I think so, too. I, I, I had that in my head. Absolutely, that's what was going to happen is that there was, you know, with Moxley, too, I don't fight with anybody unless I bleed with them first. And from my my standpoint, these two were going to have a, a brawl, a great match, and then they were going to form, if not even a tag team, there was going to be some sort of faction. And I like Danielson's idea because I think it's also it's it's blurring the lines between a wrestling storyline and a shoot because apparently Danielson is already training a lot of these guys. They want to train, and why not? Best wrestler, in my opinion, in the country. Uh, I think Danielson's just off the charts. So I think this is a good move. I think if you book Regal correctly with these two as, as the, the mentor coach in a sense, I think you've got something that we haven't seen. This is going to lead to some great friggin' matches. I'm certainly hopeful of that. And I will say, uh, you know, as I was talking with, uh, with Jeff back and forth via text, I said, you know, uh, having Regal in the locker room, uh, and uh, behind the scenes, certainly it cannot be anything but a positive, uh, you know, because he, for sure. he was so well thought of uh, when he worked uh, in the WWE. Then we had the six man tag, Barry, uh, with uh, Sammy Guevara, uh, Darby Allen Sting taking on Isaiah Cassidy, uh, Matt Hardy and uh, the man you mentioned before, Andrade. Uh, very quickly, I will say uh, this was uh, a lot of good stuff. Two things I want to point out. Number one. Sammy Guevara just left uh, his own personal faction, and all of a sudden he's hooking up with two other guys for a six-man tag. It's like he left one group, and he's joining up with this other group. I, I don't understand the mindset of that, okay? And so then 
the other thing that happened in the match that was a big deal, uh, there were some great bumps that Darby and Sammy took. Well, pretty much they do that every match. Uh, I hate to put it that way, but you, you've got now a level where, okay, what are they going to do now to try to not kill themselves? Sammy took a bump off uh, uh, one of the, the the risers where they have like the huge sign uh, when the guys come down the ring. Uh, but the move everyone's talking about uh, that maybe might be uh, even the defining moment of the entire pay-per-view is Sting taking a dive off the balcony uh, onto a row of tables, onto Andrade. Holy crap, Barry. The guy's like 63 years old. Yeah, I, I read that today. I think he's like, I think I read he was like two weeks shy of 63 years old. And the fact that he can do shit like that, the fact that he's willing to do shit like that, I believe it was a very safe bump, at least from his perspective. Unlike a guy like PCO and Impact, that's for Javorski, by the way. Uh, a guy like PCO, which, you know, he's he's just looking to wind up in a wheelchair, in my opinion. But uh, Sting, you know, Sting has proved to be valuable, right? Borsky, the only person left, uh, I think, that's watching Impact. But anyway, please continue. Yeah, I always see him posting, I'm watching Impact, and literally he'll get maybe one like. Like it's nobody else fucking is watching him. No, it's it, there's and somebody was joking with me. I think it was my friend Jason Abrams, Philly guy uh, that listens to our podcast. But he uh, he said, you know, if 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 somebody dies on impact, does anybody know? Because nobody watches it. But like if a tree we, falls in the forest, you know, yeah, nobody has any idea. It's a shame, though. I And I think partly because impact does put forth something that's decent. They just don't have the bandwidth to, to get it out there. I, I can't even get it on my smart TV. I don't have regular cable, YouTube TV. Yeah, I don't. And, and Penzer's the ring announcer on this one, too, which wow. is the of it. I can't yeah. believe his 60 million uh, listeners aren't uh, tuning in to see uh, Dave doing the announcing. There so you go. <laughs> before we get to uh, the last match on the card, Brother Jeff, and I, I want to strictly say this was Brother Jeff's question to me, because I am not one to be spreading scurrilous rumors. Excellent use of the word scurrilous there, Barry. Love it. Brother Jeff asking me, did you know that Charlotte Flair was dating Stone Cold. Did you hear that, Barry? Stone Cold Steve Austin? That is what he said. He said, I am not saying that I've heard that. That This is relating another rumor that someone else told me. But I said, what? And I said, no, I didn't hear that. And he said, that's what I hear. Uh, apparently, ever since she did his podcast, he must have been a very effective host. Barry, all these episodes we've done, we've never had one of our guests want to date us afterwards. Oh, I think it's just the opposite. They generally <laughs> run from us. They they would never do that. I never heard that. I, I know that she and Andrade broke up, but they didn't, you know, I don't know, it was some sort of deal, but I never heard Charlotte and, uh, but I am certainly Googling as we're speaking, <laughs> Charlotte and Stone Cold and see if that's out there. How did this, you still get the Observer, I don't not for any other reason that I'm just lazy and cheap, but oh, okay. Well, all right. So this is what, what I'm does the Google say. Yeah, I don't believe so. And I'll tell you why Charlotte flair spotted with WWE legend, stone cold, Steve Austin, October 7th, 2020. So that that's, if there was more, I think we would see it. No, it's October. If Brother Jeff has steered me wrong. I'm going to put it on him. So anyway, now, yeah, last sorry. match was the, of course, yeah. the battle of the Adams uh, for the AEW title, Adam page uh, versus Adam Cole. Uh, I'm going to be honest. 
I like this match. There was a lot of mat, uh, the match that was good. I didn't love it though. And here's why. How many fucking shots to the head can two guys take and, and not just have their head caved in? Because there were so many kicks, there were so many strikes, there were so many blows to the fucking head. These guys took more shots to the head than fucking Ali in his prime uh, was smoking Joe Frazier. It just got to be really, uh, you know, I finally texted Jeff and I said, it's like 15,000 fucking shots to the head. What the hell is going on? And we sort of lamented. And as a matter of fact, I think Jim Ross uh, made a comment about the fact that, you know, wrestling at this point is not about, uh, you know, working a body part a la Ole and Gene. Hey, and please, I'm not being uh, the get off my lawn guy. I understand wrestling has evolved, but come on. I mean, how many fucking shots did these guys take to the head last night? Go back, rewatch the match, give me a count, and post it in our group, Barry. Yeah, so I don't know. I, I read some of the uh, – I, I read about the shots to the head. You know, I, I think with uh, – so first off, let me – are they done with the Adams? Was this a one and done, or is this going to continue? Well, Adam Page went over. Right. Uh, yeah, so uh, I don't know. You know – I know that part of the reason that Adam Cole left the WWE, at least what I read, was that Vince wanted to put him on the main stage, but in like a managerial role or something yes. like that. He didn't want to make him a wrestler. Now, do I have any problem with Adam Cole as a wrestler and worker? Absolutely not. Guy's got a lot of talent. But I also wonder, you know, does Adam Cole, would Adam Cole make a credible world champion? I, I wonder about that. I know that you love the guy, Barry. What do you think? Well, I do. I, I don't, I got to say at this stage, I don't think, he, I don't know if he does make a credible world champion. In, and I like him a lot. I do. I think his role is just below credible world champion. So he could still be the focus of the shows. I think Adam Page has got to hold the title. I think uh, from what we've seen, look, he's only had really three challengers now being Danielson, Cole and Lance Archer. To me, Danielson, again, I'm blind when it comes to Danielson. He would be the most credible of all of these. Who would be his next challenger? You brought up a name at the beginning of this conversation, which was uh, Miro. And I think Miro coming back could do a great job of being a great challenger. I don't believe that belt's coming off of Adam Page anytime soon, though. No, and, and honestly, I don't have a problem with them keeping, you know, having the babyface world champion that the heels are chasing. Uh, that's good. You know, I, I think Miro, uh, you, uh, that that's very fair because I think, uh, you know, he certainly physically presents a very worthy a challenger. And, and please, don't have any, I don't want anyone thinking that I'm one of these guys that uh, shits on guys because, they don't weigh uh, 300 pounds and, uh, you know, like apparently Vince McMahon thinks that you've got to be uh, in the upper twos or 300 pounds to be a credible world champion. I'm not saying that. I think Miro would make a very good test uh, to Ad Adam Page. And I think that, uh, you know, I mentioned Malachi Black at some point. I think that would be really interesting. Both guys, I think, uh, have the ability to do those almost psychological interviews, you know, or yes. promos. Uh, that would really kind of fuck with Adam Page's head, and I think that would make it a, a very interesting uh, way to go. Barry, it is time for our match of the week. We are going to the 1st of March, 2003. We're in this century, Barry. We're not just, uh, you know, the, uh, <laughs> let's talk about wrestling from the 70s. No, no, we are going to the rings of Noah, 
And we are going to Mitsuhaura Misawa versus Kenta Kobachi. Now, before you say, oh, God, it's another Japanese match. You and Barry, all you like to do is get out the hand lotion and talk about Japanese wrestling. I hear there's one person that claims that. But the reason I looked into this match, the reason I investigated it is, Barry, Eddie Kingston, the Mad King, posted on Twitter recently that this was the match, the greatest match of all time. And so I said, oh, well, let me take a look at it. And I had a chance to watch it. So Eddie Kingston, the Mad King, thank you for the recommendation. Barry and I have both watched it. Barry, I ask you once, let's make it twice. Is this one of the greatest matches of all time? Or is it, in fact, the greatest match of all time? Oh, I so in my opinion, it is it. You know, let me let me re, re, retract that. It may be the greatest match of all time. It's not my favorite match. Yeah, but if I'm and I understand it, that's a very subjective opinion. Yeah, exactly. But if I'm looking at it objectively, there is a chance this is the greatest match of all time. Again, not my favorite. Easily, it is one of the greatest matches of all time. And with that, Jeff. Yes, I did have the. I had Jurgens in a roll of paper towels next to me as I. Did you buy him at Publix? I did it. Well, I didn't uh, because there were little trolls running around. But apparently, our, the little troll does not work at Publix any longer. Oh, he is, so he's, he's fucking up another uh, business. Kicked out of his house. Yeah. So, so anyway. and I must tell you, a cu- just touching on that uh, because he was. I this past weekend, Jeff, and we'll get to the match in one second. I I was in Reading, Pennsylvania with my Valentine's date, Jamie Ward. We were with the Spikers. Did you get get the first or second base with Jamie? Jamie always lets me slide into third, Jeff. (laughs) I bet he does. He does. But it was uh, the Spiker brothers, Mac and Chris joined us. First time meeting Amal Pitts and Jason D'Agostino. And, uh, of course, I sat there and, uh, you know, some of us had some, some stories to share of the individual that we're talking about the same individual that criticizes us, but yet listens to every fucking episode, which we encourage because the more, more people listen, the more that the word is spread. It's a great thing, but living rent free in his head. And, and, you know, absolutely. And uh, again, I will not be called fat bald and old. Yes, but do not (laughs) call me fat. But with that, this is a tremendous match. And look, is there, so the first thing I, I could talk about this match, but when you've got if you like Japanese wrestling, if you're familiar with Masao and Kobashi, this is an, the epic match between these two. This match is what, 19 years old at this stage right now. I can't believe it took place in, in Noah, but were there, are there two guys? I know that. So Kobashi, I like more. I think universally Masawa is viewed as probably the better of the two. But I, I throw this at you, Jeff, because, again, I can tell you all the moves that were in this match. There was nothing that was left. This match was suspenseful, had everything going. The fans are chanting their names as they're coming out. You almost never see something like that. But are these two guys, and I, I'll say it's most likely Misawa, has anyone ever had better matches or better overall matches from a volume standpoint than Masao. And I believe Meltzer, and I don't know this, I believe at one point he put a list of 
guys that had had the most five-star matches. Again, very subjective. It's his opinion, blah, 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 whatever. But with that being said, is Misawa the greatest of all time for always delivering on the big stage? Well, um, if you're talking uh, big stage, Barry, do we want to mention your uh, favorite wrestler of all time, uh, Mr. WrestleMania? (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, and I say that because that was his shtick was that on the grand stage of WrestleMania, Shawn Michaels always delivered, uh, always had a great match. Now, uh, you know, I I think he would definitely have to be included, uh, you know, giving credit. You know, Ric Flair always delivered when it was a big, a big show. But I think Masawa, if he's not the guy, should at least be in the conversation. I I think he's got to. And look, I, I was as big a flair. Take out Shawn Michaels again. Shawn Michaels providing great matches in the WWE. Comparing Shawn Michaels to a Misawa or a Kobashi. Sorry, just not having any part of that. And even Ric Flair. Go ahead and uh, say it. Huge talent and and a huge douchebag. Thank you. Uh, which is a callback to episode three, I think. <laughs> I think it go, It does go back. But look, even even professional wrestlers on Twitter were taking shots at Shawn Michaels being a fucking douchebag, which I believe was FTR and a couple of other guys last week or the week before. This is not a secret. He's a douche in and out of wrestling. And uh, I don't believe he's changed one iota based off of what FTR and other talents were saying about him. But there's look, Flair delivered on a nightly basis for two decades, right? We could say probably for 20 years, this guy was out having great matches. The caveat to that would be Flair was having a lot of times the same match almost every night. He was doing the same maneuvers, the same spots, you know, the flips, all whatever it was, flipping the corner, the face, the face first plant in mid ring, all the stuff that we don't forget the spot with Tommy Young. The spot, the pushing, the shoving that we saw a million times. What Kobashi and Masao, and this led to Masao's death because he laid it out. What these guys do here is at a different level. And again, I love Flair. I would say Flair, as far as all-time favorites, he's top 10 easy for me. There's no way you can compare Ric Flair's in-ring work to what Masao and Kobashi do. Excuse me, Jeff, I got to go crank one out. Okay. So there are some spots in this match where you literally, you, you, you fear for the two guys because they're taking bumps uh, on the back of the neck and the head uh, in these, uh, you know, the suplexes and the, uh, it, it, it's just scary. And especially when you consider what ultimately led to Mas- uh, Mitsuhara Misawa's death, you just, it's cringeworthy, you know? I, I mean, at one point you're like going, holy shit, that was fucking amazing. And then the other point you're going, eh, yeah, but that's like what ended up ultimately playing a part in his death. Yep. So, you know, you you are kind of conflicted as to whether or not you really have to, you know, be able to viscerally enjoy it as much as you want to. There's a move where Masawa uh, gives a, uh, uh, I don't know if it's a dragon suplex or what, uh, to uh, to Kobashi from on the stage down to the floor. And I think yeah. that's the second time I've seen them do that because I think we reviewed another one of their matches when they were both still in All Japan where he did that. Uh, and uh, it's just a crazy spot. And that Kobashi would go for it, you know, shows what a, a true pro he is. Uh, Barry, I do feel like I do need to mention, though, Barry, 
how fucking cool was Kobashi's uh, uh, walk up wearing the fur lined coat with the hood? I was like going, holy shit, that's a fucking great looking coat. That was, <laughs> so, that was too. So anyway, the big deal out of this uh, match is that Kobashi gets the win over Masawa, wins the GHC uh, title, which I, I want to say is the uh, Great Honor Championship, or uh, I know the H stands for honor. I'm not sure if it's the G is Great or Giant Honor Championship, something like that. But he wins Noah's World Championship, and Masawa puts him over clean. Uh, and afterwards, there's the spot where they shake each other's hands Tremendous, tremendous opponents for one another. So, Barry, I'm going to put you on the spot. Better opponent for Misawa, Toshiaki Kawada or Kenta Kobashi? Tough one there because I'm a Or Jumbo Saruta. Uh, oh, now you might have to pick against Jumbo. Yeah, this is not fair. This is not fair. <laughs> I, you know, it's after watching, and I watched this match today. So this match is fresh. It's going to be hard for me to choose anybody other than, than Kobashi. That was what we saw. And their feud was legendary. I mean, it's all the all three of those were, but this one, I this is legendary. And Kobashi to me, you look at Kobashi now, he looks like a million dollars. Here's a guy, I think he's got one kidney, had cancer, body destroyed, still looks like a million bucks, right? Always yeah. smiling. I will always be a huge Kobashi fan. I'll stay with Kobashi on that, Jeff. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. And it really, there's, there's real no wrong answer. It's just all subjective opinion. We will post a link to this match. I will tell you right away. Uh, I, I know we tell, tell every episode we say, uh, we're going to post a link, watch this match. If you get a chance, boy, this is a match that you really need to go out of your way to watch because this is some epic shit. Uh, it's about a 33 minute match. Uh, Kobashi goes over wins their world title. Uh, so there's, that is a, you know, historical, uh, context there with the uh, the world title changing hands. Uh, two guys that if you ever do a deep dive on their matches, uh, no matter who they're facing, you're not wasting your time watching either Misawa or Kobashi. Uh, that is for sure, Barry. Yeah, and you know we we do say it a lot too. And if you've been hesitant to watch Japanese stuff, I being in uh, Pittsburgh this past weekend having lunch with Mr. and Mrs. Javorski. Okay, hold on, hold on. Now, are we going to start charging Javorski ad fees? Because I don't think we mentioned him quite enough. So let's F Javorski, okay? Tell us what Mrs. Javorski's name is, and let's mention her name. Because uh, God knows the fact that she has to wake up next to Javorski every morning. <laughs> she needs to get some sort of credit. Absolutely, it's Melissa. She's married to a Cleveland Browns fan, for God's sake. Yes, sorry, she is. Uh, she is a, a wonderful, beautiful woman. Javorski, I believe, is extreme. She's also into wrestling to some degree, I'm and sorry, also what was her name again? Melissa. Melissa, and also tolerates his love of music uh, and goes to a lot of concerts with him. So he's kind of got like this really attractive wife who's very cool. And doing all these things. But the reason I was bringing it up was the other gentleman who joined us was J.B. Thomas. J.B. at 58, recently having a baby. We wished him well on the show. Holy uh, shit, he slipped one past the goalie. That's it, first child at, at 58. But with that, J.B. does not watch a lot of Japanese wrestling. Doesn't get into it. This is the match, though. If you're not watching Japanese wrestling, you hear us talk about it. We're, we're cranking one out to it. This is the match that you want to watch, because if you don't like this as professional wrestling, I don't know what else we can do or, or say to you. Well, 
Since you mentioned JB, it uh, leads into uh, something I wanted to mention. You know, Barry, at the end of last week's episode, uh, I mentioned that I was reading the uh, the biography or the autobiography of um, Bino Cook, who used to be an announcer on ESPN. Right. And uh, and JB actually reached out to me, uh, being a Pittsburgh guy, because Bino was a Pittsburgh guy, and uh, we were you know, talking back and forth about Bino's legacy uh, in the Pittsburgh area and what uh, what a big deal he was. And it made me think that uh, as I was reading the book, I came across a passage uh, where uh, Bino was talking about uh, a man that influenced him very early in his life uh, in the newspaper business uh, that had introduced him uh, to uh, Pittsburgh football. And Pittsburgh football, uh, you know, for people that are history buffs, before Tony Dorsett uh, in the late 70s won the Heisman Trophy, the biggest name, uh, you know, I, uh, and I will say there was you guys like Mike Ditka and, and people like that. And, of course, Dan Marino came after Tony Dorsett. But the first name that really resonated nationally uh, for Pittsburgh football was a guy named Marshall Goldberg. OK, Marshall Goldberg was like an All-American, I want to say, like eh, late 30s. OK, and because I'm a college history buff and a historian, I know the name Marshall Goldberg. Right. So I'm reading Bino's cook, uh, his book. And there's a reference in there to Marshall Goldberg and the backfield that Marshall Goldberg played in uh, during his years in Pitt. Uh, and there was a name that was mentioned uh, that was a guy that played in the same backfield as a running back with Marshall Goldberg. His name was Curly Stebbins. And uh, I got to say, Barry, I saw that and I got a little emotional reading that, that passage um, sure. and that Bino talked about it. And the reason I got emotional reading and seeing Curly Stebbins' name is when I first started in the clerk's office in 1986, one of the people that I met that was working in the clerk's office that, geez, would have been in his probably his late 60s, early 70s, was a guy named Curly Stebbins. Curly Stebbins worked as a courier for the clerk's office for, uh, I don't know, like five to 10 years. And he was such a nice man. And when I saw his name, and then I went and did a Google on him, and I found that he had passed away, I think, in like 2002 or 2003, somewhere along there. And um, Curly was such a nice man. And I remember sitting and talking to Curly and you know, a couple of guys just shooting the breeze. And we started talking about college football. And, and uh, so he mentioned that he had played for Pitt. Uh, and he played there, you know, long, long time ago, like in the thirties. And I said, Oh, I said, Hey, did you play with Marshall Goldberg? And he said, play with him. I was in the same backfield with him. And I completely popped when he said that I said, get the hell out of town. And that I had a link to college football's past through Curly Stebbins, who worked in the office with me for really not a long period of time, but that was, you know, uh, to quote a Bob Seger song, uh, Barry, it was such a fine memory. And reading Curly's name, and I was able to share that with JB. And when I mentioned it, you know, JB, of course, remembered Marsh Goldberg and, and, uh, and that backfield that they played in. Because they might have won a national title uh, back then. Or, or if not, they played for it. Uh, they were a very, very good team back then. And uh, I know this is way off topic, but I wanted, Barry, if you'll join me, even though he's been uh, lost to us now for almost 20 years, join me in raising an adult beverage to the memory of my friend the late, great Curly Stebbins. Absolutely. Barry always happens when blood runs cold 
Oh. We are joined by Glacier. See how I worked that in there, Barry? That was I, I'm, I'm nothing if not professional. We are joined by Ray Lloyd, the former Glacier. Ray, how are you doing today, my man? Hey, guys. I'm doing really good. Thanks for having me on. Hope you got Yeah, well, too. we appreciate you joining us as always. So as we do when we have uh, someone appearing with us as a guest, we always like to ask to tell us from the beginning, how did Ray Lloyd get interested in pro wrestling? Were you a fan as a kid or what? Oh, wow. Well, I would definitely give you the, uh, the short version, but, uh, <laughs> cause I, I could go on for hours about how I got into wrestling. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I was, I, um, uh, I grew up in born and raised in Brunswick, Georgia, which is just on the Georgia, Florida line, about an hour North of Jacksonville and about an hour South of Savannah, Georgia. So, um, it was right on beachfront community, great place to grow up. And, um, and so, you know, it was my, my mom and dad and my twin brother, I mean, he was my, my only sibling. And, um, you know, and, and my dad, my dad was, uh, like a lot of people of that era was a great fan of wrestling. And, um, and so, uh, you know, we, we obviously, you know, we'd sit and watch wrestling with our dad and, um, and we were very fortunate back in the three channel days, you know, that we actually were able to get Georgia championship wrestling and championship wrestling from Florida, which, you know, back in the seventies, you know, was, was just on fire, you know, in the seventies and eighties. And, uh, and so, uh, so yeah, we um we would yeah you know, we'd focus the the antenna on top of the TV and try to get the best reception we could you know and and then um uh and then my dad you know we got a little bit older my dad would take us to the Jacksonville Coliseum which uh which is a great to this day you know one of the greatest memories um for me wrestling wise was uh was actually we did Thursday Night Thunder one of our live shows actually in the Jacksonville Coliseum when I was uh you know in my WCW years and my dad had passed away right before I went to WCW and and so it was a very surreal moment for me and um uh and it was I always say it was my Madison Square Garden moment you know I think everybody kind of in our business uh kind of uh hopes to have that that big you know, whatever you want to call it, WrestleMania moment or Madison Square moment, garden moment to me, my Madison Square garden is the Jacksonville Coliseum. And, uh, uh, so, but yeah, I got started uh, watching wrestling with him, with my, my dad, my brother, and then, uh, graduated high school. Uh, I was fortunate enough to go to college, um, on a football scholarship at Valdosta State University and went there All my college buddies, uh, uh, grew up high school buddies. We all went to college together and, um, they did a, uh, they did a, um, a, uh, a TV taping there. Uh, in a little um, little small TV studio, and so my buddies and I would get together and, you know, go act like idiots in the crowd while they were taping TV for wrestling. And um, never ever, uh, let me go and say this: never ever um, thought that I would seriously, seriously thought that I would become a professional wrestler. And um, and part of that was uh, just I, I, I give credit to the business of all the people that came before me, that how well the business was protected back then. I um I just didn't think. I mean, even though I'd, I'd studied martial arts, I'd played college football, I was I was like I really. You know, when when the, the opportunity got presented to me by uh, by someone who I'd become a good friend with, Fred Avery, who was a very much a, a great guy. I'm still friends with him today. But a journeyman wrestler, um, you know, had a had a great uh, great career, you know, throughout the southeast. But when he um, him and my buddy Rick Allen, who would go on later to wrestle for WWF at Sandy Beach, um, when they presented the opportunity to to get into wrestling to me and my my one of my best buddies and one of my my teammates, who we played side by side together for uh, for all, pretty much all of our our whole college career. Um, I was, I had a lot of reservations because I was just like, man, I'm not, I'm not tough enough to do that. You know? <laughs> and, so, and, uh, thank God, thank God I, that Fred Avery and, and, and Rick Allen, they persuade, persuaded me and, and my buddy RD Swain to, to pursue wrestling. And so, um, so Fred trained us, uh, and, and probably what's still the hardest ring I've ever been in my entire life. Uh, and, and, uh, but back then, you know, uh, once I was in, I was in, you know, and, uh, um, we trained for, for several months and then, uh, as it was done back then, we were very fortunate to to come through during the end of the territory system. And at that time being, 
Valdosta was, you know, directly west of, of Brunswick, about two hours. So we were closer to Alabama. We were still only 12 miles from the Florida line. Uh, we weren't far from the Carolinas or Tennessee. And you can imagine if you, you know, any historian of wrestling back then, and that, that was, that would have been 87, uh, around 87, 88. Uh, that was such a hotbed for wrestling, the Southeast. So we were able to get booked as much as we wanted to back then. But that was the thing. You just kind of got thrown out there and it was more like, you know, the old system of um, you get in there with someone who's better than you and, and you try to learn as fast as you can after you've learned your basics, you know, and um, it was a very good system for us. And, and we had a lot of great teachers, a lot of great mentors. Um, and because we were both, you know, decent athletes to start with, we, we caught on pretty quick. And um, and then, uh, you know, the rest is kind of history from there. Well, let me ask you before I throw it to Barry for his question. Uh, the first guy as a kid, was it a guy from a Georgia championship wrestling or a guy from Florida that was the one guy that you went, oh, yeah, this is the guy. that He's the reason I'm turning in. Oh, yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, I, I, I always say if you're a child of the 70s, uh, especially if you're a, 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 you know, a, a male child of the 70s, you, most everybody was a big fan of Evil Knievel. Of course, I was, too. You know? and, uh, but wrestling-wise, I would say my two, my two heroes growing up in the 70s as a kid, um, obviously my parents, I, had, I was so amazingly fortunate to have great parents. Uh, that stayed together throughout our entire, you know, childhood and stuff. And which, I, as I got older, I realized how truly fortunate I was because a lot of people didn't have that. But, um, but yeah, Dusty, American Dream, Dusty Rose. I mean, he was, you know, like many, he was my favorite, and uh, I just thought he was so larger than life. He was so cool, um, you know. And and uh, and and the Briscoe brothers, because my brother and I, being twin brothers, once we we really would sit there on the Saturday mornings and watch wrestling. Uh, Jack and Jerry Briscoe really, we saw ourselves as Jack and Jerry Briscoe, you know, because as kids, you know, we could easily be that. We could, they were real brothers. We were real brothers, obviously. So, but just as far as me personally, the person who really, really just made me be in awe of professional wrestling was, was Dusty Rhodes. And, um, and as, as the universe comes together to help you, when you pursue your dreams, uh, I was so fortunate to be able to get to know Dusty on a personal level um, and and become his uh, his lieutenant, as he would say, uh, once he started Turnbuckle Championship Wrestling after my WCW years. Well, and Jeff, there's so much information in the last five minutes from Ray that I'm sitting here and I'm making notes on. Hey, it's such a shame that Ray is hesitant to talk to Ray us. Ray is shy. He is shy with us. But there's so many notes I'm just making. So first off, Brunswick, Georgia if I'm correct, home to my favorite female professional wrestler, Anna Jay, currently yep. in AEW. Yep. Just uh, I, I, I can stop you right there and give you a great story about Anna Jay. I, I, oh, I, proudly, I proudly and humbly, uh, you know, take the uh, credit for discovering Anna Jay. So wow. I, uh, my, um, one of my best buddies, I just uh, grew up with and we go watch wrestling with and went to college with me. Um, uh, my buddy Kip Branch, who was an amazing athlete himself, became a college pitcher at Valdosta State. But uh, he, uh, a few years ago, he was dating at the time um, uh, and his aunt, and they're now married. And um, he calls me up and he says, like, when are you coming through town again? And I was like, I was like, I don't know, man. And he's like, look, he goes, you know, Sandra's uh, uh, niece wants to get into wrestling. And I was like, Kip, I was like, all right, you know how many times I've heard this, man? <laughs> and so. And uh, Anna was 19 at the time. Fortunately, um, I knew Anna's, Anna's uh, father. We, we grew up together. He was a few years younger than me, but we all grew up in, in Brunswick. And, um, uh, and just, she just came from great family. And, uh, and so I went and met with her. And, uh, and I was really, really impressed by 
by how mature she was for a 19 year old. And she was very, very focused. I mean, she was, she'd been a dancer since she was old enough to walk, um, already very comfortable in front of crowds and performing and all that stuff. Obviously, you know, just, just, you know, beautiful girl and just all the class in the world you would, you would, you would expect from a, a, you know, a Georgia, South Georgia bell, you know, <laughs> the Southern bell. But, um, but she, uh, she sat there, she listened to me. I told her, I gave her all the good and the bad and the ugly of, of trying to pursue a career in wrestling. Um, after that, I talked to her parents, and she still wanted to, 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 to go forward with it. So I said, well, I said, if there was a school closer, I, I would send you to one, but there's not. I said, and personally, I think that at the time, QT Marshall and I had, and we're still, you know, partners, but Q, Cody came on, obviously, you know, um, uh, you know, recently. But uh, um, but I said, you know, uh, move to Atlanta. Move to Atlanta and come train with us. I said, I'm going back and forth, but QT's there full time. And uh, you couldn't ask for a better coach than, than QT. And I, and I, I say that very very proudly. I mean, I, I really believe that QT is, is one of, if, if not the best coach out there today. And I mean that sincerely, but there are a lot of great coaches, but uh, I've been able to see him the last few years and anybody that, that wants to get into wrestling, I recommend if you get a chance to get coached by him, take it. But uh, and me and him both, obviously, but I think I, I'm pretty decent too. But, but uh, anyway, so Anna moved to Atlanta, her and her brother, they got an apartment together. She got a waitressing job. She started training with us. And man, I mean, she was, um, she checked a lot of the boxes for me. She had a great work ethic. She was very athletic. She already was kind of comfortable in front of, uh, you know, what would soon, I would soon see when she'd get in front of crowds. Um, but, uh, you know, she always bought a notebook, which is big with me, you know, write stuff down, you know, which I learned from Dallas Page, from DDP. And um, she just, she did everything we asked her to do. She was very humble. Uh, QT did a great job of coaching her. And, um, and, and I always say, like, I discovered her. QT coaster, you know, so I'm always very clear about that. <laughs> so, wow. and I, I mean, I had a hand in it too, when I could get up there, but day to day, uh, he deserves most of the credit. He really does. And, um, and, uh, so anyway, and then, um, you know, she actually, we were actually we did a show, a benefit show for my uh, former high school, Brunswick high school. And she actually went to Glen Academy high school. We did a show in Brunswick in the fall of 2019, September of 19. Um, and that was her first match in front of a live audience. And, and she just, she was a natural. I mean, she was literally, I was so blown away by QT and I both were at how, how much, how seasoned she looked in her very first match ever. And, um, and then when the pandemic hit and, uh, we, um, uh, when, when they actually, you know, they taped some of the, uh, AW, AW tapes like six weeks worth of TV at our, our school in Atlanta, which we are housed in the Chip Smith Performance Center, uh, uh performance systems, which Chip has been my mentor since I've been a, a teenager. And, um, and, all of a sudden opportunity presented itself and she was ready for the opportunity where they put her in there with cheetah. Who's one of the very best in the world. It was only Anna's seventh match. Let me say that again, her seventh match ever. And, and she did good on all accounts. And all of a sudden Tony Khan was like, you know what? I need to lock her down, you know, <laughs> before somebody else discovers, discovers this, this uh, diamond in the rough here. And, and, uh, and so the rest is, and like I said, everybody knows the rest of the story. Yeah. So there, again, so much information, Ray. So my next question is going to be a two-parter to you and because I, I want to definitely want to delve in deep with both. And I think our listeners will as well. So your relationship with Dusty, I know that Dusty did bring you on. You view Dusty as a mentor as well. And, and you had a great relationship with Dusty Rhodes. I really want to hear about that, about working hand in hand, especially with Turnbuckle. But, you know, also your time in WCW. The other thing that I have kind of a two part question is when you were going to Jacksonville and making that drive and, and heading over to Jacksonville, what was it like walking into the Coliseum? Coliseum, too, the biggest drawing the biggest week 
weekly crowds in Florida in CWF. Unfortunately, I never got a chance. There's maybe three arenas I never got to see wrestling in the state of Florida. Jacksonville Coliseum was one. What was that like as a little kid going with your family, being able to go to this large arena? It's every Thursday night and being able to see your heroes. What kind of impressions were left on you? You know what? Uh, it was, it was, it was really, I mean, that's a great question. It was so, so cool. I mean, it really was because, you know, back then there weren't any grand entrances. There weren't, I mean, it was just, you know, the guys kind of walked out and, and the match just started, but, but it was enough. It was enough. They didn't, no one needed anymore. I mean, I don't remember anyone even having interest music because that was, that didn't come till later. And, uh, you know, but they always had great ring announcers who could really, really pull you into the moment, you know, and that was always a cool thing, but yeah, it was just, um, it was the light over the ring, you know, and yes. everything else was dark. And, and you don't see that a lot in wrestling shows anymore. Uh, I mean, unless they're the big shows, you know, that can afford that. But, um, and that was one of the big things that, that one of the main first lessons I really learned from Dusty when he started Turnbuckle, once again, after my WCW years, was he was very big on that. Wherever he went, he really tried very hard to have that same kind of setup where we had a big light over the ring because he, he always had a great, great philosophy that, that when the light is not on the fans, the fans are more apt to really enjoy themselves and have a good time and, and make noise and clap and get up and jump around and really, really get the money's worth, you know? And, uh, but if the lights are on all over the place, a lot of times they're not as apt to do that. Not as comfortable to do that. So that was one of my very first really big lessons I learned from Dusty, but yeah, it was just, you know, and like I said, as a high schooler, my high school buddies, we would go to the, to the Jacksonville Coliseum. Um, I think probably the coolest thing guys that's really come out of me being able to watch wrestling there is back then, uh, uh, Dottie and Don Curtis ran the, they, they were the, you know, they were the unofficial mayors of Jacksonville, you know, Don Curtis, old school wrestler and, um, you know, very well respected throughout the whole city of Jacksonville and the whole state of Florida. He's passed away now, but his wife, uh, Miss Dottie still lives in Jacksonville and I've been able to become great friends with her. And that is, I mean, most people, you know, that are wrestling in the wrestling business will get this in me because if you love the business the way I do, getting to know the lady who was, was, you know, hand in hand with her husband, the ones who were in control of all of that, the Jacksonville Coliseum, is I always say, you know, do what you love and what you love will reward you. And that's been one of the greatest rewards is getting to know the people that really ran the shows back then and especially someone like her. So, yeah, it was um, it was just so cool. It's cool. I don't I mean, as hard as I'm trying to describe it, I don't think I ever really can find the words to just really describe how cool it was. Because back then, you know, uh, the arena was such, I mean, you know, it's a big, it looks big as a kid. It's still, you know, it was still a nice arena when we got older, but, you know, it just looked like this magical place to me, you know? And, um, and when I stepped into that, I remember, which has always been my goal as a wrestler, because as a fan, I always try to remember I was a fan first. And as a fan, all of my problems went away for the next couple of hours when I was yep. watching wrestling. And so that's always been my goal as a wrestler. When I go out there is I want to make people forget about their problems. I want to, I want to, I want them, I want them to feel the magic of professional wrestling and I don't want them to be worried about anything else. I just want them to really, really, you know, uh, as, as another mentor of mine, Luthez will always say, try to give them more than their money's worth. Cause if you give them the money's worth, okay, they'll, they'll be, maybe they'll be satisfied. But if you give them more than their, money, their money's worth, then they're really satisfied and they really want to come back for more, you know? So, so yeah. That was a long answer there for the question. Sorry. <laughs> no, but, it, but it was great, too. And I, I want to touch on And, Jeff, I'm going to throw it to you in a second. Uh, Don and Dottie Curtis, too, the, literally the unofficial mayor and first lady of Jacksonville. Uh, yeah. I've become great friends with Dottie over the years. And as you oh, know, wow. Ray, 
yeah, we've been running these fan fests in Tampa. And I will say the first time yeah. I ever met you in person, you showed up unannounced uh, at our first fan fest. Jeff, you were yeah. there. And I was like, holy shit, it's Glacier. And we got a photo with you, which was cool. And you stuck around. But Dottie gave me, I'll say 2012, 2013. She gave me one of the original bricks from the Jacksonville Coliseum. It's one one of my most (laughs) treasured possessions. And I've gotten it autographed by a bunch of guys that actually worked in the building. And I, you know, it's one of those that I've got on the mantle. If I had a mantle, it'd be on the mantle. But uh, yeah, yeah, I I just, I can't say enough good about Dottie. I have been trying to get her to a fan fest. She's had some health issues, which, you know, over the last few years. But our goal is uh, we've inducted Don into the CWF Hall of Fame. I, I want to do it in person and I want Dottie to be there to be able to accept the award. So yeah, I keep man, trying and yeah, hopefully she'll actually be able to listen to this, but Jeff, you did yeah. have a question. Yeah. Well, thank yeah, and, you. And uh, Mary, I, real quick before I forget, I, I, I'm sure I hope you remember. I remember, man, you gave me a copy of one of the books that, uh, that was the history of the Florida wrestling. I still have that, man. I want to thank you for that. Absolutely too. And okay, I, uh, yeah. I, yeah, I remember giving you, and uh, as a heads up, June 4th is our next event. There's an invite oh, wow. waiting for you if you want to join us, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Barry, actually, really quick, um, you and I, I definitely, I've been meaning to call you anyway about something concerning the CWS Fan Fest. So, um, you know, I, once we get off the, the you know, podcast, maybe sometime this week, we'd love to maybe just chat with you, and I'll catch up on that. And then I can, uh, maybe we can come back and maybe get some real cool information about something that I think may be something to help really even promote the Fan Fest to, to, to even greater heights. So well, we'll talk I, later on that. <laughs> and I let me say, I absolutely appreciate that. And just as a heads up, Ray, I will be seeing you on the 26th. Jeff, I'm going to squeeze the plug in right, right now. Yeah. So you're uh, you'll be in Philadelphia with uh, our old friend, Nick Massey, the captain. Nick yeah. is a great friend of mine. And he said, hey, do you want to come down and work the table with Glacier? I said, I absolutely do. So I will be with you uh, on the oh, 26th. Yeah. Absolutely. I will be there all day with you, man. Uh, okay, well, you know what? I'll wait to t- catch up with you then on that because I'll have some more information on what I was going to talk to you about anyway. So yeah, we'll just we'll have all day to catch up then. So that'll be great. But, uh, but for all of yeah. our listeners, if you're within the Philadelphia area or you're within driving distance, meaning you're New Jersey, Delaware, Pittsburgh, Connecticut, Pittsburgh. I was just in Pittsburgh over this past weekend. They love Glacier in Pittsburgh. Glacier yeah. will be I at the. I heard, I heard Mrs. <laughs> Javorski's a big Glacier fan. Mrs. Javorski, oh, really? oh. yes, she is. She was talking wow. about him this weekend when I said I was going to be there. Maybe the Javorskis will come from Pittsburgh to see Glacier. Wow. He will be at the Icons of Wrestling. It is a convention yep. fan fest taking place Saturday, March the 26th at the 2300 Arena. That's the old ECW Arena. It's going to be a lot of fun. If you cannot make that appearance, and we encourage you, I will say, Ray, you know, I've met quite a few wrestlers in my day, Jeff. We've met quite a, quite a few. Is there a nicer guy than Glacier? Like, <laughs> first off, of all the talent we've met, is there a nicer guy? This is the guy that you want to meet because I tell you, you will not be disappointed. Warm, first time we ever met him, it was like a brother to us. Warm and friendly. You want to be in person, but let's say you live across the country. You cannot make it to Philly. He will be doing the Captain's Corner Happy Hour the night yeah. before. So that's March 25th, starting at 6 p.m., Nick Massey, the captain, does a great job with these. They go anywhere between two and four hours. 
all kinds of autograph memorabilia. Glacier will be signing and personalizing autographs. And the cool thing is you can see it all take place on Facebook Live. So we encourage you, if you can't be in Philly on the 26th for uh, for this big wrestle fest that's taking place, icons yeah. of wrestling, clue, clue in the night before. It's the 25th. We will post a link in our Facebook group. The Captain Nick Massey will be posting links everywhere. This is one you do not want to miss. Am I right, Jeff? Uh, just excuse me. I was getting a text from Jaworski. He's going to be there. And he says he and Mrs. Jaworski will be buying dinner for uh, for Ray if he's interested. So oh, you, you oh, got that going for you. Uh, they're buying for everybody. So let, let's get a big crowd down there because uh, dinner's on the Jaworski. Jaworski's. So, Ray, I wanted to ask you as I was uh, looking over some of your career, one of the things I'm a huge football fan. So, of course, when you uh, yeah. mentioned Valdosta State, I pop for that. But I understand. And this is for our uh, our football uh, fans out there and the, uh, the listening audience. You in college played with Jesse Tuggle, who had a long career with the Atlanta Falcons. Yeah, yeah, and, and and before we get off the convention stuff, let me cover one little thing because I definitely want to talk about Jesse. But um, is uh, I will be um, uh, I told uh, Nick that uh, even uh, on Friday, um, for at least most of the time we're there, I'll I'll, I'll be in in my full glacier getup, and uh, and of course all day Saturday I will be. But I'll, that's why I just want people to understand too that um, that the, the what my my whole outfit, my armor, my the mask, actually the boots, and uh, of course the spandex haven't lasted twenty years, but I got new spandex. But um, but the armor that that and and actually the mask, the stuff that I'll be presenting uh, Friday and Saturday is all the original stuff from WCW. Actually, there's only one, there's only three original masks made. Two of them have just they've just worn out over the years. I have the third one. It's literally the same one I wore on TV a lot back in the WCW days. The armor is the exact armor, the belt. I actually, I still, my boots, you know, thank God. My, I have great wrestling boots, and, and they are still the ones I wear to this day that I wore on WCW the last three years. And um, But, uh, but yeah, it, it's a, I'll, I'll look exactly the way, um, you know, and thank God the armor still fits. I may be a few pounds heavier, but I say I'm okay, and I still have all my hair, thank God. But, uh, you know, uh, but uh, so – I, I look. A Wait a minute! You you I still like have all your like hair. Like that, that's giving Barry and I a reason I to hate you, Ray. Exactly. I wake up every day expecting that to change. I'm like, oh, <laughs> all right, I got one more day, you know. So, uh, but uh, but no, yeah, and and I just um, but just to say too, yeah, I mean, I, I I'm always a fan first. I always have been. I'm very proud of that, and and I have a, I really have a just a um, a, an undying passion for wrestling for and uh, and for. Um, and for always, you know, I, I, like I said, I thank God every day that I was able to get in this business. I thank God every day that I, I got to be Glacier and I'm still Glacier. And, um, and, and I try to bring that passion to, uh, anytime I do an appearance or anytime I'm, I'm around anybody else that loves wrestling because, um, because it, it was never just a job for me. It, it was, uh, it was so much more than that. And, and I, I, I plan on being involved in wrestling until until i take my last breath on this earth so um so yeah if you get a chance to come visit with it through virtually uh, on the 25th or in person on the 26th um just know i'm, I'm more than happy to, to stand there and talk wrestling with anybody because uh it's something that's a true true passion of mine well really ray let me let me ask you a question I, I don't mean to interrupt you i apologize but you know one of the things that barry and i you know we've done 230 episodes oh my and gosh. one of the things that we say consistently is that the guys who end up uh, being people that uh, the audience really connects with and that really has a, a better understanding it, guys that grew up as wrestling fans. Yep. And yeah. you, you know, we have guys out there, let's be honest, that get in the wrestling business that didn't grow up wrestling fans that, you know, maybe yeah, they were doing something okay. else, yeah. but do you feel that guys that grew up wrestling fans end up 
making better pro wrestlers? I do. And it, I mean, it's funny, because uh, I definitely want to come back to, to Jesse before we you know, run out of time here. But uh, um, I, it's one of my, another one of my favorite quotes. I'm really big on quotes. I was a teacher and a coach you know, for, for 14 years in public school and obviously still being a coach with the, the wrestling school. And, and just, you know, I, I just feel a moral obligation to the people that taught me who were some of the greatest ever to pass along what they taught me. You know, I always tell people like, yeah, guys, I'm not making any of this stuff up. I'm not smart enough to. So I'm just telling you what I was taught. <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I heard Richard Dreyfuss say this about aspiring actors one time, and I think it really falls true and into professional wrestling people that pursue pro wrestling. And he, he said, um, you know, it's okay to want the fame and the fortune. You just can't want that first. You know, and I think that really does say so much about, you know, you pursue anything that's an entertainment type profession um, where, you know, it's okay. I, I don't fault anybody for wanting the fame and the fortune. But um, but I, what I found, what I found over the years, the people that seem to want it for that mainly, they typically set a window for themselves of about three or four years. You know, and if it doesn't happen within that time frame, for whatever reason, they start to become really bitter. And I always say that you know, uh, the world's got enough bitter people. We don't need any more, especially in the wrestling business. <laughs> That's why I always try to tell people. Let this be your passion and pursue it for the right reasons, because one, you'll just enjoy the ride a whole lot more, no matter what, you know, and and if the big break never comes, you know, you won't end up being a bitter old soul that that, that big break never came because you you look at it and say, wow, what did I really? Well, I got to meet a lot of great people from this business, maybe some of my heroes. Um, I got to be accepted as a peer in this business that I love so much. There's a lot of really good things that can come from chasing anything that you, that you lead with passion before anything else. Jeffrey? Oh no, I thought I was uh, I was on you now. Oh, well, well, well I think. Well, wait, <laughs> no, so, I'm sorry. Yeah, you know what yeah, I think? I think Ray was. Yeah, Ray was going to Jesse talk Tuggle. about Jesse. Right. Oh yeah, yeah. So yeah, we um uh, real quick. Uh, Jesse, first of all, uh, as great of a football player as he as he as he was, he's even a better person, and I say that 100 percent honestly. Um, he is well, honestly when during college he was one of the most most humble just best people. Everybody wanted to be around Jesse because, um, you know, he came in, I redshirted my first year because I had a knee injury and had surgery and ended up redshirting. So he came in my redshirt freshman year and then we spent all four years together. And so, um, yeah. And I remember the first day we were in the weight room when he was 18 year old, 18 years old from Griffin, Georgia, he was just different. I mean, he came into the weight room. I'll never forget. First time I saw him do the bench press test when he was a true freshman, I watched him. Everybody's watching him. And like I said, nobody knew he would become what he became, you know, but uh, maybe he did, you know, but we didn't know he had. And, uh, and I watched him put, you know, 315 pounds on the, on the bench, you know, and, and you know, he warmed up. And 315 pounds, you hear people say, oh, I missed 300 pounds. In the real world, not near as many people miss 300 pounds as they'd like to admit, think that they do, you know. <laughs> so, and, uh, uh, and I watched him lift like a machine, literally like down, uh, like not crazy, yelling, screaming, nothing like a lot of other people do. Uh, and I remember thinking, like, man, there's something, there's something special about that guy. Just the way he lifted weight, and um, and he was, uh, you know, he, as anybody that knows that follows his career, he was never an overly big guy. He was about five eleven, uh, maybe maybe six foot, but um, uh, and, and you know, played probably around two twenty, two twenty five at, at, at Valencia State. But man, I tell you what, when he hit you, boy, he hit you like he was twice as big. And uh, he just had that what I call like football speed, like he just knew when to accelerate to the football and, um, and him playing middle linebacker, me playing center in college, you know, we didn't, you know, the way college is structured, you don't go one-on-ones, you know, first team against first team all the time, but we went a lot because in South Georgia, football was still 
you know, smash mouth football back then. And, um, and so, you know, and he made me a better player. Yeah. He became a great friend. He's still a great friend of this day, but he really made me a better player. I didn't realize it at the time, but just going against him to practice a lot kept me to go. Cause I would realize that I wouldn't, I was going up against guys that weren't as good as him on, on Saturdays, you know? So, um, and I couldn't be happier for him. I mean, he, you know, a lot of people don't know his story. Uh, coach Mike Cavins, our head coach, our last two years, uh, coach Cavins is now back at university of Georgia, who uh, was quarterback at Georgia back in the day with the coach at Georgia. Um, and uh, when they won the national championship, he's the one who recruited Herschel Walker to play at Georgia. And, um, but you know, he knew the Rankin Smith family, uh, who owned the Falcons at the time. And, uh, and Jesse didn't get it as far as I remember, he didn't, I don't think he got a, a serious offer from anybody or out of college. And um, Coach Cavan, I always say my favorite quote ever is, it's not what you know, it's not who you know, it's who's willing to say they know you. Coach Cavan went to the, the Smith family and said, you need to take a look at this guy. And they, they did. They signed him as a free agent. They brought him in. Of course, he just wowed everybody in camp. And I uh, remember he got the, the uh, nickname Ragdoll in the camp as the first rookie year because he just knocked people off, out of their shoes. And, um, and once again, I always say, and the rest is history. But, yeah, an amazing guy. Um, and an amazing football player, but even better guy. And I'm really proud to call him a friend. Really proud to have played college football with him. Barry, just a little context for those who are right off the bat don't remember. Jesse Tuggle, first of all, five-time Pro Bowler, Barry. Yeah. Uh, college football Hall of Famer. His number, uh, 88, was retired by Valdosta State. And yeah. Barry, over the course of his career, 1,800 tackles. Guy could put a hurting on you. <laughs> so, Jeff, I yeah. ask this because I know you when it comes to sports. Is this literally off the top of your head? Uh, I wish I could say. Okay. <laughs> it's not. But I, the, certainly when the name Jesse Tuggle is something that I remember because he, he, God, like, what, 15 years at the Falcons. He was a tremendous uh, you know, pro player. And obviously yeah, Hall of Famer in college. Yeah, and, and I do remember, um, you know, uh, uh, and it just obviously I followed this career a lot closer than maybe the, you know your casual fan would. But I remember, um, you know, that uh, I ran into him shortly after he retired, and uh, uh, we we I just ran into him at dinner, and um, you know, and I just tell him, man, hey, man, so proud of you, whatever. And but you know, it was a very public story back in the in the especially in Atlanta when um, he retired. Is that I think he broke his thumb. And um, in, in preseason, and uh, and the Falcons, you know, it was just one of those moves where they were like, well. You know, I mean, he, we've had him for a long, long time. And, uh, you know, and they're always thinking of, oh, you know, it's the same thing that Tom Brady went through with the Patriots, you know. <laughs> and uh, and no matter how legendary of a name you create, at some point, you know, you have a shelf life, you know, and uh, especially at that level. And um, I remember, you know, he, being a Georgia boy, born and bred in Griffin, Georgia, right there, uh, he, he always wanted to be and one play for one team. He always said he wanted to play for only one team, wanted to make his legacy with one team. So he made the choice to retire but instead of getting traded and probably could have played maybe two or three more seasons and been that, that, you know, kind of that veteran on the team that, you know, kind of like Montana did after his 49er years and stuff like that. But he didn't want to do that. He wanted to be able to go down. His legacy was that he played for one team, the Atlanta Falcons. And I really, if I didn't respect him already, <laughs> which I did, my level of respect just went even higher for him. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of guy he is. And um, I think that says a whole lot about him as a person. Wow. Well, Ray, as we uh, as we start to wrap up in the go home for us, we want to give the fans a little more info on the, the big event coming up. It takes place yeah. in person. This will be an in-person signing. Ray will be there as Glacier in the full Glacier. Uh, 
This will take place March 26th, uh, which is really just a couple of weeks away. Takes place at the 2300 Arena, the former ECW Arena. It's the Icons of Wrestling. It's an all-day event. I believe the doors open at 9 a.m. If you cannot make it in person, you can certainly join the night before as our old friend Nick, Nick Massey does the Captain's Corner Happy Hour. This takes place Friday, March 25th, beginning at 6 p.m., These things are always great because Ray can inscribe it to you personally. You'll be able to see it. I encourage you to make it to Philly, but if you can't, this is the next best thing. My last question for you, Ray, we don't discuss, uh, don't just discuss professional wrestling on this show or football. Obviously we discuss everything. Uh We, we break kayfabe, Jeff, what do we break kayfabe on? Oh, let's see. We got uh, wrestling, uh, sports, movies, television, life, life. We also talk a lot about food. Uh, that is a huge thing for us on this podcast, especially oh, me. Man. You have traveled the world with WCW for years, professional wrestling for 20-something years at this point. You have traveled the world. If I said to you tonight, Jeff is, is cranking up his private jet. He's going to take us out to dinner, Ray. Where are we going tonight? What's your favorite restaurant in the world? Oh, man. Well, it's a little bit of a little bit of a, a ways away. We'd have to maybe, uh, you know, um, maybe have a few uh, light beers to keep us occupied in between the trip there and back. But <laughs> I, as many would say, you know, I was very fortunate to wrestle in Japan, and I, and I will say that uh, I, nothing beats the Ribera steak, you know. <laughs> in Japan. Nice. So, I've been there myself. It'd be, it'd be, a, be a long trip, but it's worth it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it's Jeff's paying for the gas, which is about five bucks a gallon right now. So <laughs> I think we're okay. Jeff, on that note, we have asked this question to multiple wrestlers on the on the podcast. I think Ribera has led uh, as an answer more than any other restaurant in the entire world. Would that be correct? That, I think you're right. So I will ask Ray, since I am going down with my wife to Orlando this weekend, your home, tell me a good spot to take the wife. You can go expensive. You can go cheap. However, just give me a good restaurant to take the sainted Mrs. Bowdrin to. Oh, I would tell you one that I just, uh, my, uh, my girlfriend and I went on, the, uh, uh, Valentine's day. Um, we actually were, were, we actually, thank God I have a very logical woman in my life that she was like, you know what, let's go to night after Valentine's day. It won't be so crazy, <laughs> but, um, there's a restaurant here that was opened in 1971 called Linda's La Cantina. And it is an amazing steakhouse. Ooh. And this is 1971, uh, very much a nostalgic look and feel on the inside. Um, very cool place. Very cool. Out near Full Sail University. So, um, and Winter Park area. So I, 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 I had all the years I've been in around Orlando, I'd never been. And uh, I, I cannot wait to go back. It is, it is an amazing, amazing restaurant. And if you want a good steak, you'd be hard, hard, to find one any better than that. Barry, I just did the old <laughs> just did the old Google and uh Linda's yeah. getting the solid 4.7. Oh wow. The, uh, yeah. Five. So yeah, yeah I think place. Mrs. Bowder and I may have found where we're going to dinner. Yeah. And, so, and I believe I, I believe it's still family owned. Um but yeah a lot of really cool pictures from uh they even actually have the original menu uh and you'd be amazed how much prices have gone up since 1971. <laughs> 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 yes. Yeah, it's crazy. So, but um, but yeah, that'd be great. That'd be a great place. I recommend that. And um, gosh, I'm trying to think of. I mean, there's so many great places in Orlando. But uh, that's one that that most people don't know about. I didn't. I knew. I'd always kind of heard about it, but never went. And uh, it's kind of a, a hidden gem here in Orlando. 
Okay, well, hey, I really appreciate yeah. that. So, Ray, once again, on behalf of Barry and Lou and myself, we want to thank you so much for joining us. We want to encourage everyone out there that uh, is a follower of this uh, fine, award-winning podcast to, uh, if you're in the Philadelphia area, as Barry said, uh, and you want to yeah. show up and uh, and meet Ray and interact with him and the rest of the people that will be going, Javorski is buying. So, on that <laughs> note, thank you so much for joining us, Ray. Thank you guys so much. I look forward to seeing everybody on the weekend of the 25th and 26th. Barry, heading down the home stretch now, we are putting the boots to the horse as we're getting ready to cross the old finish line on episode 231, Breaking Kayfabe. Another fun episode, Barry. Oh, this was great, too. You know, great, great conversation. I love the AEW talk. We got to crank one out to a Japanese match. Glacier joining us. Just fun. Just all the way around. All fun, Jeff. Okay, before we leave, Barry, would you like to reference the name Stephen Javorski one more time? Just so, you know, he he gets completely full of himself and ends up having to pay us ad money. Yeah, hold on one second. I'm texting Javorski right now. 67 mentions on the next episode. So Yeah, yeah you're going to be getting a phone call from Brian Last uh, asking <laughs> for a, a copious money. And, and, and I don't, instead of $5 for the Patreon, I think Javorski needs to kick in 10 next month. What do you think, Bear? I, I think Javorski needs to get Patreon as a gift for family members. Thank That's you. His lovely saying. wife, Melissa. Yep. Uh, you know, anyway, uh, on behalf of our producer, Lou Kippelman and my co-host Barry Rose, I will say that I am Jeff Bowder. They call me the booker sometimes and a uh, breaking KP with Bowder and Barry, a production of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. This has officially been the Stephen Javorski episode of breaking KP with Bowder and Barry.